Thank you, Cindy. Beautiful music. Thank you. And Dexter and family, I'm jealous. The man can preach and he can sing. I'm a one-trick pony, Dexter. I don't, you know, some people aren't even sure about that trick. Even when are we going to do our, we're going to have our family up here like the second Sunday in September. That's the Sunday we're up. If you're wondering, what are they laughing about? Our last Sunday here is the first Sunday in September. So you're safe. We want to keep you around. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. I'll begin reading in a moment from verse 1, but find Romans chapter 4. I'm preaching through the book of Romans. And Paul has made the case in the first three chapters, really pointed to verse 23 of chapter 3, and that is that we're all sinners. And he's used illustration and example. Paul was a great preacher. In my preaching classes in seminary, I was taught that you've got to have exposition, illustration, and application. You're going to get that in chapter 4. does a great job of using Abraham and David as an example of what he's been teaching for the first three chapters. So last week we kind of closed out chapter 3, and if you're thinking, well, I wasn't here last week. Well, i got good news for you. Uh, you can go on the Internet and download all the messages. That's homework for this next week. Catch up, and then if you're not back this summer, you can listen to the rest of them, uh, either through iTunes or through just downloading them off our website. And invite you to do that because you will be tested on this at the end of the summer. Now, we invite you to come back as often as you can. The title of the message is, What is Your Credit Score? If you go to the bank, they're going to check your credit. They're going to check your history. They want to know what your credit score is. Well, they don't do that if you just go to the bank. But if you go to the bank for a loan, all right? It's like if you walk in to cash a check, they're probably not going to check all this. But if you want a loan these days, and it's been this way for quite some time, they're going to check your credit history. They're going to check your credit score. And in this economy, they're still not going to give you the loan. But they're going to check all that stuff, all right? And if you've got a perfect credit score and hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, they will probably lend you some, all right? But this morning we're going to look at what's your spiritual credit score. You're going to hear in this passage several times that it was credited to him as righteousness. So what have you been putting in the bank? What's in your spiritual bank account? Let's look at the first three verses and I'm going to stop at the end of verse 3 and, and kind of unpack the first section, which really deals with this example of Abraham's faith. Paul lifts up Abraham as an example of what he's been teaching for the first three chapters and then leading into chapter 4. And he asks this question, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul realizes that a, a large number of the people he's addressing are Jews, either currently Jews or they are, as some would call, completed Jews. They've come to faith in Christ, but they are still got the baggage of a history that told them the way you get right with God is by doing these things. And what we looked at last week is the law pointed toward our need of a Savior, it never saved anybody. It simply showed us how desperately needy we were for a Savior. So we lift up Abraham. And folks, if you were a Jew, if you were somebody reading this letter that had that kind of history, there is nobody that Paul could have lifted up 
that was a better example to the Jews than Father Abraham. Abraham, who was promised, would be the father of a multitude. So he lifts up Abraham and simply asks the question. In fact, verse 1 is a hard verse to read. Because if you're not careful, you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. And different translations translate it a different way. And if you read three commentaries this week, you'll get four different opinions on how to interpret this verse. So the question is, is, he, is Paul saying, what then should we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So is he saying on the one hand, according to the flesh, he's our forefather? Or... Is he saying, what should we say about Abraham? Has he found anything according to the flesh that would earn him right standing before God? And so you say, all right, preacher, which is it? Is it that he's simply talking about according to the flesh, he's our forefather? Or is it that Abraham somehow was able to be justified by the flesh? Which is Paul asking? And the answer is yes. Abraham was our forefather according to the flesh. But if you unpack the rest of it, he asked, continues to ask or to state if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about. So was Abraham justified by anything he did in his flesh? The answer is no. But Abraham absolutely certainly was our forefather. He's the one that went on before us and, and had an incredible promise from God. And here's the point that Paul's making. Paul is saying, if I could lift up a Hebrew among Hebrews, and later on in Paul's writing, he calls himself the same thing. He's basically saying, if you could be justified by what you do, then look at me. And Paul said, let me tell you about me. I'm better than all of you. <laughs> but in the eyes of God, none of that earned me salvation. If you could get it by doing the stuff, Paul would say, I would have been in. And so would have Abraham. He said if he was justified by works, in other words, if he was placed in right standing before God. What we looked at last week is, simple definition of the word justified is this, pronounced innocent. In fact, it's really better than simply being pronounced not guilty. Because there are people tried in courts all the time that are pronounced not guilty, but they really are guilty. There just wasn't enough evidence to convict them. But in God's economy, because of what he's done through Christ and his righteousness applied to our life, Explain a little bit more about that later. Here's how we stand before God. Innocent. Just as if I'd done everything right. So if Abraham could be justified by faith, he'd have something to boast about before God. He could poke his chest out, say, look at what I've done. But he couldn't do that. In Daniel chapter 4, just make a note about this, look at it later. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar went walking out on his rooftop one day, and he just looked at all the kingdom that he thought he had built with his own hands. And so he started having a little praise party, a little worship service. Problem is, he was worshiping himself. And he said, look at all this that I have done with my own power, with my own strength, with my own hand. I'm great. All of a sudden, he hears a voice from heaven. And God speaks and said, Nebuchadnezzar, your glory has just been removed from you. Read the passage. It gets ugly. He becomes like an animal, eating the dirt, and finally comes to his senses and all that stuff restored to him. And he finally realizes, okay, it was God that did all that, not me. If Abraham could have had something to boast about, 
He could have poked his chest out and maybe had a boasting party with his friends, but he couldn't come before God with that. Why? Because Abraham wasn't justified by what he did. Instead, it was credited. If you've got a King James Bible, there's probably a word there. Let me teach you a theological word. It's the word imputed. You need to know that because it's just a good word. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. It was imputed to Abraham based on faith. And the word really means credited. Imagine going to the bank and you need, you are out of money. You have no money in your account. And you know it. And in a matter of seconds with a few strokes on the keyboard, the people at the bank are going to know, you're broke. But you need $50,000. Because you've got a mountain of debt. People are calling You owe us. If you don't pay up, we're coming to take one of your children. So you walk into the bank, and the bank manager says, well, how much do you, what do you need? Well, I need a loan. I need $50,000. And he says, well, let me check your account. And you said, I need it bad because I have no money in my account. I need a loan. And all of a sudden, he pulls up and he says, sir, you've got a million dollars in your account. If you ever play Monopoly, one of the cards you could get Monopoly was bank error in your favor. I think it was like $15. We don't play Monopoly at my house because I make my children cry when we play Monopoly. So we don't get to play that anymore. But I think it's like $15, you know, and the guy's going, wow. Well, keep in mind, Monopoly came out at a time when $15 was a lot of money, I guess. But you've got money in your account that you don't even, you didn't earn it. You didn't put it there. Of course, they do an investigation to find out how it got there. But the good news would be, sir, somebody put it in your account, and it's yours. That's what happened with Abraham. He was credited to him as righteous. And what was it that credited it to him as righteous? What imputed this righteousness to him? His faith in God. And keep in mind, Paul's been talking about the work of the law. Listen, Abraham came along before there was a law. So you couldn't say Abraham kept the Ten Commandments perfectly because there weren't any. And all those other commands of the Old Testament hadn't been put on paper yet or parchment or stone yet. And you wonder sometimes, how do those people in the Old Testament, go read Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith where it talks about people like Abraham and others who never met Jesus and yet their righteousness was found in their faith in God. Abraham wasn't perfect. I love the fact that you read the Old Testament, you find out about people like David, who was referred to as a man after God's own heart, and yet David messed up. You read about people like Abraham, who's the father of the nation, and Abraham, whose faith was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, who will spend eternity in heaven with God. He wasn't perfect. God led Abraham to Canaan. A famine in the land. This is the land, God said, you go to a land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham gets to the land, they have a famine. So rather than going back to God and saying, God, you led me here, you must know what you're up to. Abraham takes matters into his own hand, heads off for Egypt. I hear they've got food in Egypt, I'm taking my family and my people, we're going to Egypt for a little while till this famine thing's over with. Let me just, this is an aside, this is free, make a little note. If God leads you somewhere and it gets tough, go back to God and say, God, did I miss something? Did you lead me here? 
If he did, then don't leave there. God hasn't forgotten you. God doesn't make mistakes. Saw a sign on a church this week that says, God never says, oops. That's true. God led Abraham to Canaan, and he never tells him to leave there. But Abraham goes to Canaan. What else does he do? He gets to Canaan, or excuse me, he gets down to Egypt, and he realizes, you know, there's some ugly women down here. And when they see my wife, they're going to want her for their wife. So, I mean, I don't know what Pharaoh's women looked like that he was married to, but Abraham was scared to death. I've heard about Pharaoh. He's going to take my wife and kill me. So here's what he says to his wife. Don't tell anybody you're my wife. That ring on your finger, how about taking that off? Tell him you're my sister. Well, that was a half-truth. She was his half-sister. But she was his whole wife. And out of fear, again, God has made him a promise. And I don't think that Pharaoh doubted God's promise. He just several steps along the way thought God needs some help. So, honey, don't, don't tell him you're my wife. So Pharaoh takes her and marries her. And God sends all these plagues on Egypt. And Pharaoh finally comes and says, please take her back. You're killing me here. Why didn't you just tell me the truth? He also, after God promised, here's the other thing about Abraham. His name used to be Abram. His birth name was Abram. The word Abram meant father. Only one problem. He never had any children. How would you like to be introduced, you know, as, what's your name? And in the English translation would be, my name is father. Oh, how many children you got? Well, none. Still waiting on the promise of God. Later on, you'll find out that his name gets changed from Abram to Abraham. What does that mean? It means father of multitudes. How'd you like to see people at the store? Let me introduce you to my friend. What's his name? Abraham. Oh, father of multitudes. How many children have you got? Well, none. So that's Abraham. Third issue I, I see with Abraham is not only did he leave the land God told him to go to, not only did he lie about his wife, but he ends up helping God out by having a child by one of the servants. So Abraham was not perfect. And yet God credited it to him as righteous. Why? Because he had faith in God. Bottom line, the best thing I think you can say about Abraham is in verse 3, a quote from Genesis where it said, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Let me explain faith just a minute, because a lot of us think, you know, faith, I've heard it described as faith is, you know, you all walked in here and sat in that pew. You've all placed faith in the pew, right? Did any of you check the pew to see if it would hold you? Have any of you ever gone to sit in a chair that didn't hold you? Okay, I, that's happened to me. One reason it didn't it didn't hold me is it wasn't there when I went to sit in it. I had a brother older than me, and he thought it would be really funny to, here, Robert, sit here. You know, as soon as I started squatting, he pulled a chair out from under me. Well, for a few days or weeks after that, I started making sure it was there. But I've gotten to where I sit down without. But you know what? That's really not faith. That's more trust. 
Here's what faith is. Hebrews 11:1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the longer you walk with Christ, the more your life is going to be about faith, where you just know the one whom you've placed your faith in, and you realize how faithful he is, and you realize how little it is about sight anymore. And Abraham was credited as righteous. And you'll see toward the end of his life, his faith actually grew stronger. Let's move on then to the blessing of faith, verses 4 through 8. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of in the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been, con- have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Wow. The blessing of faith. See, if you work a job and they pay you at the end of the week, that's not grace. That's not a favor. Oh, here's, here's a little something. No, you've earned it. I remember the first job that I ever had outside the family. I know my dad owned the lumber company. There were times he would pay me to help out there, but that really didn't count. I think my first job was when I was about 15 years old. I was an umpire for Little League. And I think we got paid like $5 a game. That was pretty big money. That was, that was definitely more than minimum wage. The only problem is some of these games would go too long. And if you work behind the plate, I think you got $7. Well, at the end of the game or the end of the week when they paid off, I went to get what I had earned. I had worked hard for that. If you've never umpired or refereed anything, especially Little League, you earn your money. Because the people you deal with are not the kids. It's the parents if we could ever have, like, Little League games where the parents had to watch at home on television or something, it would be a happier planet, all right? But I went and got that because I had earned it. But listen to what Paul says. But to the one who has done no work, but has placed his faith in a God who justifies the ungodly, that's the one whom God has saved. Here's the problem of how that plays out in this generation. It's possible what what Paul's talking about is 2,000 years ago and beyond, bringing it into today. It's not so much that we've gone and memorized the Old Testament and thought, I've kept the law. It's just we feel like sometimes we're pretty good people. You know, if you ever talk to somebody and say, are you going to heaven? And they say, oh, yeah, well, why? Why? What is it that you think is going to get you into heaven? Well, I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. I remember a survey in the newspaper where they asked that question, are you going to heaven? Eight people's responses were in there. Not one single person said no. And I lived in the town where the survey was taken in. I thought, there's some people in here that are not making it. But what disturbed me more is out of the eight people that were surveyed, are you going to heaven? Not one single person said yes either. They all said something like, well, I'm trying my best. Or one said, I hope so. One I really felt bad for was one actually said, I've got a 95% chance. 
Well, bless your heart. You know, and I think they're thinking, you know, if you're playing the Vegas odds, that's pretty good. Here's the good news about the gospel. You don't have to go through life with a 95 or even a 99% chance. You can know that you have eternal life. And folks, it will not be because you get to heaven and God's going to say, well, on your balance sheet, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? One. Anybody here think they've only committed one sin? I've done the math before. You know, I'm thinking if you live to be 70 years old and there's only like three times a day that you think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, or do the wrong thing, just average three times a day, you're pretty good. But that's a thousand sins a year. After 70 years, that's 70,000 sins. You really want to face God and say, God, I think maybe my good stuff's outweighed my bad stuff. No. No. We're desperately needy for a Savior. And here's what Paul's saying. Blessed, happy, fortunate, well-off is the one who comes to God and recognizes that he's the one that justifies the ungodly. I read this quote this week on the divine scale of perfect righteousness. Even the most devoted and long-serving Christian is not a hair's breadth closer to earning his salvation than the most vile criminal who accepts Christ on his deathbed. See, God justifies the ungodly. Here's the issue, though. You've got to acknowledge that you're ungodly. And beyond that, because there's a lot of people who say, well, I know, I know I'm not the best person, or I know I'm ungodly. But if you placed your faith in Christ, because if all you do is acknowledge you're ungodly, you're only halfway there, and if the rest of your life you think, I've got to make up for this, I will strive harder. I don't hear this happening a whole lot anymore, but when I was a student, you know, grow up, especially at revivals, you'd have these invitations where we would have, you couldn't, some people would come for first-time decisions. Other people would come and make a rededication. Here's what you say in rededications. I'll try harder. God's convicted me. I know I'm a sinner. I'm going to try harder. Well, folks, until you get to the place where you realize your best is not good enough, your effort will never get you there then you're only halfway there if you realize you're ungodly. When you come and throw yourself on the mercy of a God who justifies the ungodly, the God who declares innocent the guilty, you face God guilty. But he declares you innocent. Why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross. Imputed, that word imputed really happens twice in this equation. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get there in a minute. Faith is credited as righteousness. Based on your lawless deeds, you've been forgiven. Let me tell you what the word forgiven means. It means to send away. If you do something to me and I forgive you, and I may mean it with all my heart, I have a hard time forgetting it. And I may for a short period of time still remember that every time I see you. Here's what God does. God says when you're forgiven, I send it as far away as the east is from the west. I cast it in a sea of forgetfulness. I remember it no more. Folks, that's good news. In Christ, you can be forgiven. Not because God ignored your sin. Oh, no. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. 
He paid for it. Romans 3.23 that we've already looked at says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God doesn't wink at sin. He hadn't changed his attitude toward it. He still hates it. But the reason he can impute or credit righteousness to your account is because somebody paid for that sin, and it wasn't you. It was one who never sinned, who lived a pure and spotless life, Jesus. So how do you get there? Well, you admit that you're needy, and you understand that in Christ is the only way you can be innocent. Last thing, and I'm done, is the credit then of faith. I've skipped some verses here. Those verses between verses 9 through 17 are kind of a more unfolding of what Abraham could have done in the flesh that still didn't earn him salvation. And he gets and closes the chapter out then in verses 18. Let me read this. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for the sake only was it written, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him as righteousness, but for our sake also. Here's where you enter the story. As to those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Abraham hoped against hope. You really aren't hoping until the situation's hopeless. Abraham did a survey. He thought, I know God has promised an heir. Thirteen years ago, I had a son by a servant named Ishmael. That wasn't the right one. Thirteen years have passed. He's almost a hundred. And Abraham's thinking, as far as having children is concerned, I'm about dead. I'm a corpse, literally. And not just me, but my wife, who's 93 years old, her womb is closed. She's never going to have a child. She's 93 years old. And yet Abraham knew God had made a promise. And it said his faith actually grew stronger, and he never wavered in that faith. In fact, I think the greatest testimony to the faith of Abraham is after Isaac is born, God says, go offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham does it knowing that somehow God's either going to raise him from the dead or something's going to happen, and he's coming back with me. Incredible faith on the part of Abraham. But all of that was written not just for Abraham. It was written for us too. Just closing out with that last verse. He who was delivered over for our transgressions. It was because of my sin that Jesus was delivered over. In fact, the word delivered over is a, is a word, it's a judicial term referring to the commitment of a criminal to, to be carried out with the punishment. Jesus was delivered over and he was raised 
for our justification. Delivered over because of our sin. Raised so that we could be pronounced by God innocent. That's where the both of the words imputed came. Our sin was credited to Christ's account. It was imputed, carried over, transferred to Christ. So now I can face God with a clean slate. And it's even better than that. He was also raised for our justification. So the other side of my balance sheet shows that I did everything right. Why? Because my sin was imputed to Christ, but His righteousness has been imputed, credited to me. And if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, that's not fair. You're right. It's not. I hear people say sometimes, well, that's just, that God allowed that. That's just not fair. Now, let me tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is that any of us have a chance for eternal life. Any of us could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what's not fair. Because, folks, I deserve to die. Jesus didn't. But because he was delivered over because of my sin, God also conquered death in the grave by raising him from the dead for my justification so that I could be pronounced innocent. So let me close with this question. Are you still trusting in your ability or in the finished work of Christ on the cross? Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what a meaty passage. A lot here. And God, I confess there's still times that we act like we don't get it because we still go about striving so hard. And yes, God, there are things you've called us to do. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, but we don't do the works so that you'll love us. We do them because you already love us. And in Christ, I'm forgiven not because of anything I've done. In fact, the faith to believe you was a gift. So God, I pray for some today that they would simply come to a loving Heavenly Father. And say, hey, I give up. I will place my trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can pay the penalty for my sin so that I can be right with God. God, burn that message into our hearts, even this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you.